Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the precious gift it is to have your word. And Lord, we must confess that if you had not drawn us this morning to hear your word preached, to come before you in worship with brothers and sisters in Christ, we would not be here. So Lord, we thank you that you've worked upon our hearts, inclined our will to be in line with your will so that we would come and hear your word. So Lord, we pray that you would continue to draw us close to yourself. Help us as we seek to comprehend the words of Christ here. May we be challenged so that we become more like him. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through John chapter 6 together, and we've come to the last section now. And this whole chapter has basically been about Christ dealing with people who have seen this miracle that happens at the beginning of John chapter 6, which is the feeding of the 5,000. He fed all these people, and they wouldn't just take one free meal and go home. They've been following him around and then speaking to Jesus, and he has been speaking back to them and teaching them about a true bread of life that is far superior to the bread that they received at the beginning of chapter 6 when he fed the 5,000 plus probably another 20,000 when we include women and children. And so he's been working his way through the crowd's objections here, and he's come now to John chapter 6, verse 60, where he's now going to be speaking primarily to his disciples and then the 12. So initially it looks like he's speaking to the crowd, The whole crowd is there, they're asking him questions, and we see the kind of questions that they ask him in John chapter 6, verse 25, John chapter 6, verse 28, John chapter 6, verse 30, and then it seems that he may even start to speak to the Jewish leaders particularly. It's no longer saying they or the crowd, so to speak. It looks like the term is the Jews is used instead, which can sometimes refer to Jewish leaders. So he started by talking to the crowd, then he's been speaking to the Jewish leaders within the crowd, and now he comes and talks to his disciples because his disciples start to speak their own mind as to what they think of Christ's teaching about him being the bread of life. And we see the first comment from them in verse 60 of John chapter 6. So I encourage you, if you've got a black church Bible, open it up to page 1057. It will be helpful for you to have it open and to follow along this morning. John chapter 6, verse 60, we read, On hearing it, Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? So now it's not just the crowd that is objecting to what Jesus has been saying, it is his disciples who are objecting to it as well. And this is not the twelve. There was a a much larger group of people following around after Jesus, listening to his teaching and claiming to be his disciples, people who have taken his teachings on board, not just there for a free meal, but actually interested in Christ as their teacher. And so they're classified as his students, as his disciples. And even his disciples here are saying, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And then Jesus goes on to reiterate some of the things that he's already been teaching, along with a few extra things in verses 61 to 65. Uh, He talks again in verse 65 about the way that he said that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. And then we see the reaction of his disciples to this further teaching of Jesus, and that is that they turn back and no longer follow him. In verse 66 we read, From this time many of his disciples turn back and no longer followed him. There's this great exodus of the people. There's the crowd seems to have walked away, and now even those who previously have not just been following him for a free meal, those who have actually been his disciples 
are turning back because of the hard teaching of Jesus about him being the bread of life, that they need to eat and drink of his body and blood. And then it narrows down even further. The focus goes from this big crowd to maybe the Jewish leaders to then the disciples. And then we see that he says in verse 67, you do not want to leave two, do you? Jesus asked the 12. So we see the way that they're distinguished. The 12 are separated from the rest of the disciples and Jesus now challenges them as to whether they will leave two. And this is a surprising question for Jesus to ask them in some respects because you think, of course, the 12 will want to stay with Jesus. But it's a question that we should be asking ourselves as well. I think there's a place for us to say, do you want to leave Jesus too? To ask ourselves that question and to be asked that question by myself up the front here today, to say the words of Jesus to you, you do not want to leave too, do you? There is a place for self-examination of Christians. I think you need to be asking yourself, are you indeed saved? Are you really one of Christ's disciples? Now, I know some people get annoyed uh, with asking that kind of question. I know they think, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. Of course I'm a Christian. I never need to examine myself again. I never need to be asked that question. And for someone to come along and say, are you saved, is quite offensive, really. But I think there's good reasons why we should engage in such self-examination, examining ourselves and then be willing to have other people examine us too, to ask us that question, are you going to leave too? Are you going to one day have a problem with something that Christ says to such an extent or something that Christ does in your life that you will walk away as so many people did here? They saw Jesus do this marvellous miracle. They heard his teaching. They walked away the crowd. And then even his disciples, people who said they were followers of him, walked away as well. I think there's good reasons why you here this morning, as even law-abiding Australian law-abiding, good Christians, people who claim to follow Christ's law, should ask yourself this question. You do not want to leave too, do you? From time to time, and even this morning, you should test yourself to see if you are going to leave Jesus one day. Why would I say that? Why would we ask this question of us? Well, because if Christ asked the apostles, then you should ask it too. That's one reason. I mean, if you think of all the people who've ever lived on this earth who would, of course, be following Christ and should never have a need to examine themselves, it would be the apostles. Christ chose them to follow him. Christ has been teaching them for years. They've been with Christ all that time, and yet then he turns around to them and says, do you want to leave? And I know that us in this room, or at least I speak for myself, I'm not even close to being an apostle. I can't speak the very words of God, as the apostles were granted to be able to do. I haven't been commissioned in the way that those apostles were. I haven't been called of God by Jesus the way that they were. I haven't spent time living with Christ, physically with him, hearing him speak audibly in the way that they did. And so, although I know most of you at this church that are gathered here this morning, you profess commitment to Christ, I'd say few of you... I like the crowd, and you're more closer to the apostles, but not even that far. You're on a spectrum, so to speak. You put the crowd at this end, the apostles at this end. I don't think you're quite apostles. And so if it was good for the 
apostles to be asked, do you want to leave too? Then it's good for you all this morning to be asked that question by Christ as well from time to time, including this morning. Are there any other reasons why you should ask this question of yourself this morning? Well, it's interesting. Christ asked the apostles this question and there was a devil among the apostles. Christ asked the question and it was with good reason, really, because there was a devil among the apostles. And we see that in verse 70. Peter speaks about how he, of course, uh, follows Christ and he, sa- he actually answers on behalf of them in, uh, on the rest of the apostles. In verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And what does Jesus respond with? Verse 70, then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. If there was a Judas amongst the twelve, then there's a good chance there's a Judas amongst us this morning. Someone who claims to belong to Jesus Christ, but really is a devil, belongs to Satan and is Satan's tool amongst us this morning. And so if it was good for Jesus to ask the question to the apostles, and then we see that even one of them was not one of Christ's, then it's good for us to ask that question of ourselves this morning as well. Are there any other reasons why we should ask this question of ourselves? Well, it's not just shown amongst the 12 that there can be a devil in God's people, But we see again and again in church history that people claim to be a Christian, claim to be a follower of Christ and will follow him to great extents, but then are shown to be a devil. And there's many examples from church history. If you just read church history, you start to see more and more examples of people who followed Christ steadfastly, but were shown to be a Judas, were shown to be a devil. And I read one example of this uh, just two weeks ago when I've been reading uh, Spurgeon's autobiography. I've mentioned it before. And I saw an example of this in Spurgeon's ministry. Spurgeon was a Baptist preacher in the 1800s. And he had a a big ministry in London. But before that, he had a a smaller ministry uh, in a village called Waterbeach. And he gives an illustration of his time from Waterbeach and particularly of someone that turned out to be a Judas. And I don't usually read out uh, sermon illustrations. I don't uh, have a lot of sermon illustrations to begin with. But uh, this one is probably the longest sermon illustration I've used before in the pulpit. But I thought it was so helpful for me to read it and so applicable to this passage that it would be good for you to hear it this morning as well to realise that there are many devils in church history. And so we need to ask this question of Jesus to ourselves this morning. You do not want to leave too, do you? So listen to what Spurgeon has to say about this character. He says, While I was at Waterbeach, I had one man who caused me many bitter tears. When I first knew him, he was the ringleader in all that was bad, a tall, fine, big fellow, and one who could perhaps drink more than any man for miles around him, a man who would curse and swear and never knew a thought of fear. He was the terror of the neighbourhood. There were many incendiary fires in the region and most people attributed them to him. Sometimes he would be drunk for two or three weeks at a spell and then he raved and raged like a madman. So here is a man 
who is a man of sin. He is not interested in the things of God. He is interested in his own self and evil. But Spurgeon continues, That man came to hear me. I recollect the sensation that went through the little chapel when he entered. He sat there and fell in love with me. I think that was the only conversion that he experienced. But he professed to be converted. This big man, who's the fear of the neighbourhood, comes in and sits down in Spurgeon's chapel. He had apparently been the subject of genuine repentance, and he became outwardly quite a changed character. He gave up his drinking and his swearing and was in many respects an exemplary individual. All the parish was astonished. There was old Tom so-and-so, weeping, And it was rumoured about that he felt impressed. He began regularly to attend the chapel and was manifestly an altered man. The public house lost an excellent customer. He was not seen in the skittle alley, nor was he detected in the drunken rows that were so common in the neighbourhood. After a while, he ventured to come forward at the prayer meeting. He talked about what he had experienced, what he had felt and known. I heard him pray. It was rough, rugged language, but there was such impassioned earnestness. I set him down as being a bright jewel in the Redeemer's crown. Here's this man, the fear of the neighbourhood, comes in, hears the gospel preached and appears to be a changed man. He even prays, not elaborate in his prayers, but earnestness there. He held out six, nay, nine months he persevered in our midst. If there was rough work to be done, he would do it. If there was a Sunday school to be maintained six or seven miles away, he would walk there. At any risk, he would be out to help in the Lord's work. If he could but be of service to the meanest member of the Church of Christ, he rejoiced greatly. I remember seeing him tugging a barge. Most of you know what a barge is, I hope. Um, A barge, uh, sort of like a boat in the river, with perhaps a hundred people on board whom he was drawing up to a place where I was going to preach. And he was glorying in the work and singing as gladly and as happily as any one of them. So all these people wanting to go to hear Spurgeon preach, and he's there with a rope on the bank pulling them along so they can hear Spurgeon preach. And he's singing all the while. If anybody spoke a word against the Lord or his servant, he did not hesitate a moment but knocked him over. So he went on for a time. But at last, the laughter to which he was exposed, the jeers and scoffs of his old companions, though at first he bore them like a man, became too much for him. He began to think he'd been a little too fanatical, a little too earnest. He slunk up to the place of worship instead of coming boldly in. He gradually forsook the weeknight service and then neglected the Sabbath day. And though often warned and often rebuked, he returned to his old habits. And any thoughts of God or godlessness that he had ever known seemed to die, godliness that he had ever known seemed to die away. He could again utter the blasphemer's oath. Once more, he could act wickedly with the profane. And he of whom we we had often boasted and said in our prayer meetings, Oh, how much is God glorified by this man's conversion? What cannot divine grace do to the confusion of us all was to be seen sometimes drunk in our streets and then it was thrown in our teeth 
This is one of your Christians, is it? One of your converts gone back again and become as bad as he was before. Spurgeon continues, Before I left the district, I was afraid that there was no real work of grace in him. He was a wild red Indian sort of a man. I've heard of him taking a bird, plucking it, and eating it raw in the field. That was not the act of a Christian man. It was not one of the things that are comely and of good repute. After I left the neighbourhood, I asked after him, and I could hear nothing good of him. He became worse than he was before, if that was possible. Certainly he was no better, and seemed to be unreachable by any agency. As I read that story in Spurgeon's autobiography, I kept waiting to hear that he returned to the Lord that he was a backslidden person and returned later with great joy to the chapel. But I was disappointed as I was reading through that. And I learned that he was another Judas, someone who appeared to be converted, to be a follower of Christ, but in time turned his back on the Lord and walked away altogether. So that is a reason why we should ask this question, of ourselves this morning, you do not want to leave too, do you? Because it's not just Judas who is held up as an example of someone who walked away. It's countless people through church history. And even today, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, for a decade or two, you will know people that you once saw and held up as a godly example, as a jewel in the Redeemer's crown. It turned out to be a Judas and they walked away. And so you need to examine yourself. Are you a Judas? Are you someone who will walk away one day as well? So we've seen that we should ask this question because Jesus asked it of the apostles. And Jesus asked it of the apostles and it was with good reason because one of them was a devil. And we've seen that we should ask this question because devils have continued to be amongst the Lord's people again and again in history. But we should also ask this question of ourselves because examination of ourselves may actually bring eternal life for the first time into our hearts. The stakes are too high for me to let a Judas walk to hell under my watch in this church. Ultimately, I don't mind if people are offended of me asking them to examine themselves and whether they are in the faith, to look at their hearts and see, am I really one of Christ's? Then to... Not ask that question and allow someone here to sit contentedly while all along they're a Judas. I'd much rather have a Judas come to salvation under my ministry than to continue in unbelief. Ultimately, I'm not on a witch hunt here this morning out of fear of what a Judas may do to me ultimately. Jesus knew what Judas would do to him, wasn't afraid. God is sovereign. It's okay if there's a Judas amongst us, or a few of them. Things will be okay. God is sovereign. But I'm concerned for the souls of the witches who may be amongst us. That's why I am technically on a witch hunt this morning, because it's come up in the text. And Jesus challenged his apostles to look and see if there was a witch amongst them. I could leave the Judases alone and not be so divisive this morning. But ultimately, I love the Judases too much to allow them to walk the broad path to destruction. 
So that's a fourth reason as to why we should ask this question of ourselves this morning. It may actually bring eternal life into your heart. And by allowing me to ask you that question this morning may bring eternal life to you. And then there's a fifth reason why I think we should ask this question. Because ultimately, examination for a Christian should give encouragement to them that they are indeed saved. As they look at themselves, examine their hearts and see the signs of true faith. That should be an encouragement to persevere in the faith, that you are one who belongs to Christ. So I want you all now to examine yourselves. Now, some of you may not like that idea. You say, of course I'm a Christian. I don't need to examine my heart. Well, if that's you, you're the very one I'm after this morning, the one who is obstinate and not wanting to search your heart. You need to examine your heart most of all because I want to make sure you go into glory with me, that you don't go to destruction, that I shepherd you in to the gates of heaven one day. So ask yourself, is there any possibility I want to leave Jesus too? This morning, do I want to leave Jesus? Is there anything in my heart that leads me to say, yes, it'd be nice? to leave Jesus, to walk away from him? Ask yourself that question. Now you may say, as you ask yourself that question, I don't think I want to leave him now, but how can I know that I'll never want to leave Jesus? How can I know for in the future that I won't walk away as Judas did? Well, one way is by asking yourself, do you truly accept the teaching in John chapter 6, there's many tests, really, to see whether you are indeed saved. But one is that you ask yourself, do you truly accept the teaching in John chapter 6? Because that is what was unpalatable to most of the people who are following Christ about his body and blood and that salvation is by faith alone. So if you do not accept the teaching of Jesus about believing in his body and blood, if you don't, then you're not a Christian and one day you will walk away, most likely, from God's people. If you have never taken on faith in Jesus' body and blood given for you at the cross. Another question you can ask yourself is, can I affirm the words of Peter here? What does Peter say in verse 68? When Jesus asks the question, he answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. For Peter, there's no other place to go. And you, if you're a believer, should have the same experience, that there is no other alternative for you. If you're sitting here this morning and you ask yourself, shall I leave Jesus too? And you think, yeah, it would be nice because there's another option. Then it's likely that you're not a Christian and you will walk away one day in all likelihood. Do you feel that another religion is a possibility for you, that Islam or Hinduism is something that you might turn to one day as a way of salvation? Do you feel that you could go over to the atheists one day and join Richard Dawkins and his followers in this world? Do you feel that you could go back to the sinful lifestyle that you once had, go back to drunkenness at the pub, pornography, gluttony, a life of crime, the gossiping and fighting and envying and lying and cheating and anger that you enjoyed in the past? Is that a possibility that you actually are still attracted to those things and would love to go back to them? 
Or is it that you say with Peter here, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There is only one place for me to go. Because if there is an alternative for you, as I said before, you may well leave Christ one day. You may look like a Peter, but you're a Judas in disguise. A Christian has no place to turn other than Christ. And do you affirm the words of Jesus here, of Peter here in verse 69 as well? The first thing he says in 68 is, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then he follows it up with another statement that you can ask yourself if you affirm this too. What's it say in verse 69? We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Can you say that? Do you believe and know that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that Jesus is God himself, the Holy One who saves you from your sins? If you don't, then you're not a Christian. You may hang out with Christians, you may come along to church, but if you don't believe that, along with Peter and along with the Christians through the centuries, then you're not a Christian and you may well indeed abandon any sort of allegiance to Christ one day. So if you can't affirm these things, then my encouragement to you this morning is stop having a Christian veneer. Stop just looking like a Christian while all along you're rotted on the inside. I learnt a little bit about veneer the last two weeks because we've been looking at getting some new church pews and we've been looking at another church that's selling their pews and it looked really good at first uh, that you know, it would be a much cheaper alternative to buy someone else's second-hand pews and so uh, people went over and had a look at them. But I learnt in their report about these pews is that they have a veneer and a veneer is where there's like chipboard, not solid wood, and then they put something over the top that makes it look like it's solid wood. And so long term, it's not as durable. And that veneer on some of those pews is actually coming up and revealing what's behind all along, that it's not solid wood. So there's someone like me who's fairly ignorant about when it comes to woodwork, who thinks that it's solid wood, can spot but there's actually chipboard behind there. The veneers come up. And that's the way many people are who claim to be Christians. They've just got a Christian veneer. And all along, there's a Judas underneath. How do you know if you're a solid Peter, that you're a solid Christian? Well, it's by believing these things that Peter says here, by trusting in Christ. And I encourage you to do that today. Stop having a Christian veneer and being the devil's tool. It's a terrible thing that's said of Judas here. Yet one of you is a devil. That is what you are if you're not a Christian. You're the hand tool of Satan. Stop it. Trust in Christ today and start to live for his glory the way of hell is full of Judases. There are many people who claim to be Christian that are on the broad way to destruction. Don't be one of them. Trust in Christ as you should today. But if you have answered yes to these questions this morning that I've been proposing to you, as you've examined yourself and you've asked the question of yourself, you do not want to leave too, do you? And you've said, no, I don't want to leave you, Jesus. And yes, I affirm those things that Peter says there. And be encouraged. You have eternal life. You belong to the Lord. You are one of his chosen ones. He has called you to belong to him. And the promise that he makes again and again in this passage of eternal life is applied to you. 
For example, we saw it back in verse 40. Verse 40 of John chapter 6, this applies to you. It says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. If you've examined yourself this morning, as I've encouraged you all to do, and I hope you have, and you've found that you're not wanting, that you are belonging to the Lord, and be encouraged by this self-examination. It wasn't something to ultimately hurt you. If you're a Judas, hopefully it brings you to eternal life and gives you great joy. But if you are a Christian, it should give you great joy every time you examine yourself as well. That it shows you once again, you're going to be raised on the last day by Christ himself. You have eternal life because you've fed on the bread of life. And if that is you, be encouraged and yet continue to welcome self-examination. Continue to welcome examination by others. Be ready to be challenged by others and to challenge others yourself about whether they are indeed saved, whether they will walk away from Christ one day. That is why being part of a good local church is important, to belong to a body of believers where they will actually get to know you and ask you tough questions about your salvation, about your relationship with the Lord, so that that you can be challenged to examine again and again whether you do belong to the Lord or whether you are actually a Judas. Let other church members ask you tough questions and let the pastor of the church, the elders of the church, including myself, ask you such questions. I know some people fear my pastoral visits. Every six months, I check in with every member of the church and ask them a few questions. And one of them is how their walk with the Lord is going, particularly Bible reading and prayer, because that's how you know you have a relationship with someone. If you don't talk to them and they don't talk to you, you don't really have a relationship with them. And so I'm interested to know, are you still following Jesus? Or are you someone who is wanting to leave Christ? Leave off Bible reading and prayer because you're not actually interested in Christ anymore. My visits are ultimately done in love. They shouldn't be something you fear greatly because I'm trying to make sure that when I meet with you every six months that you're still heaven-bound rather than hell-bound. And I hope that in time, and I know some of the members really welcome these visits, because in time you understand that it's done out of love and care for you, and you actually like that someone loves you enough in this world to ask how your walk with the Lord is going. How many people in your life would actually love you that much that they care whether you're going to heaven and hell or hell? Do you have friends who would actually ask you how your walk with the Lord is going? Now, some of you may, and that's great. But one of the main ways that you get people in your life like that is by being part of a local church and welcoming such examination and being willing to examine other people's, to ask people within the church, how's your walk with the Lord going? Are you still following after Jesus? So as we come to a passage like this, I think there's good reason to examine ourselves once again as I hope we have done this morning, and to see whether we are indeed a Christian. And if we are, rejoice in that, but also be welcoming of such examination again in the future. But this isn't the once and all examination, and after this time you never have to do an exam again. I remember when I finished university, I was so excited that I never had to do another exam. Then I went to Bible college and uh, had to do more. But then after Bible college, I haven't done an exam since, and it was great. But this is not one of those examinations that passes and 
you never do it again. This is something that should be a regular part of your life, in your quiet times, asking yourself these questions, but also being willing to be asked them by others, including every six months from a pastor like me. Let's come before our God in prayer. Let's speak with him. Heavenly Father, we have to recognise that we do not like examining our hearts. We don't want light to expose our sin and our unbelief. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to welcome such examination by yourself and by ourselves and by others, that we would look into our hearts and see our sin there, confess it, and receive eternal life through Jesus' body and blood. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to know that you are the Holy One of God, that Jesus is the one who is the answer. He is the bread of life that we need. And we pray that there are no Judases amongst us this morning. But if there is one, Lord, Lord, we pray that this may be the morning where they strip back the Christian veneer and come to Christ and become one of your people and give you glory and receive eternal life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.